Hello, hello, and welcome to the Canadian Football Countdown, a proud member of the Canadian Football Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Coop here with a special bonus episode of the podcast this week. Yes, that's right. You get two episodes in one week. Uh, it's your lucky week. Uh, it's the first ever edition of the CFC Book Club. Uh, the CFL, this great league we get to talk about week after week, has such a fascinating, such a storied history. And uh, today I'm pleased to be joined by one man who's bringing some of those stories to light. He's an Argos fan, a CFL historian, and the author of a brand new book called Year of the Rocket coming out in September. It's the great Paul Woods. Paul, how are you this fine evening? Well, I'm great, Ryan. I don't know about the great part, but thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. A big shout out to Serena from Sutherland House Books for setting this all up for us. Uh, before we start digging too far into the, the specific details of the new book and the history it revolves around, uh, give our listeners the high-level synopsis. What is Year of the Rocket all about? Yeah, so it, thank you. It's, it's, uh, it's a, the story of the 1991 Toronto Argonauts. Um, it was, it's what I describe it as the most magical, electrifying, and in many ways crazy year in the long history of the Argos. They've been around for almost 150 years. You know, Canada was six years old when there was first a team called the Toronto Argonauts playing football. Uh, and of all those years, this 1991 was was the the wildest. Uh, it's the story of uh, amazing ownership. Hollywood came to to the CFL. You had John Candy, Wayne Gretzky, Bruce McNall. They uh, they brought in Rocket Ismail and gave him the biggest contract any football player ever had received. Not just in the CFL, any football player any anywhere. Uh, they had uh, they they were the circus that year. Uh, they rolled through the league. Uh, they they played in and won one of the most memorable Grey Cups, the coldest Grey Cup of all time, with probably the most heroic performance we're ever going to see in a Grey Cup from quarterback Matt Dunnigan. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff that led into 91 and some stuff after 1991 that's also in the book. But that's really what it's about. It's, a, it's about that crazy year when, when Toronto Argonauts were at the center of attention, not only in the Canadian football world, but really in Canada and really in the sports world. You mentioned the Argos franchise is almost 150 years old and the CFL has quite a history as well. Like I'm sure there are a plethora of different fascinating stories to be told throughout this franchise's existence. So why this season? Why this story in particular? What about it stood out to you as this is the one I want to write about? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I actually, it's, it's the second book I've written. I wrote uh, about, I guess, eight years ago. I, I released a book called The Bouncing Back from National Joke to Grey Cup Champs, which, which described the Argonauts winning the Grey Cup in 1983 after a 31-year drought, which was at the time was the longest drought. I think it still is the longest drought uh, for any franchise. Um, and it was uh, it was a real, really interesting project to take on. I I grew up, uh, you know, as an Argo fan, and I, I started getting season's tickets. My first year of season's tickets was 1981, um, and that was the worst year in Argo history. They were two and 14 that year, an incredibly disappointing year because they they brought in a great quarterback in Condridge Holloway and they had a lot of talent around him and they couldn't win to save their lives. But two years later, basically the same team or certainly very many of the same players uh, won the Grey Cup and ended that 30, excuse me, that 31 year drought. Uh, and so I did that book uh, in 2013 on to mark the 30th anniversary of the 83 Grey Cup championship. 
And then I sort of had it in the back of my mind, you know, maybe I've got one more book in me and, and man, what a great book to write about the 91 team. You know, and I, I mean, I remembered that team so well and I, I'd followed it incredibly closely. I, I, I documented just about everything that, that happened that year between, you know, videotaping, not only the games, but, but news reports about the Argos and, you know, whatever was on sports, what is at the time it was called TSN sports desk. Now it's sports center, whatever was on sports desk or, or global sports line. I was taping like crazy that year and I was collecting all the newspapers and programs and everything. Uh, and so I had this massive treasure trove of archival material and I and I just and I established in my own mind that I could take on a very big research project by having done the book about the 83 Argos. So I took this on. It was a bigger project. 91 is a much bigger story than 83 even was. Both of them are kind of three-year story arcs, but uh, the 91 story was just so massive between the Hollywood elements and, and so many other things. It took me four and a half years. I did more than 100 interviews, talked to all of the principals that are still alive, basically, or almost all of them. There's a couple that I didn't reach, but uh, just about everybody I needed to speak to, I spoke to. Um, and I had to stitch it all together. And uh, I do truly believe that if you were going to write about one year in the 148 years of Argonauts history, 1991 is the year to write about. I don't think we're, we'll never see a year like that. We'll never see the CFL outbid the NFL for the number one draft choice. We'll never see, you know, a quarterback play the Grey Cup game with a, with a, a, a fractured clavicle in his throwing arm. Uh, there were just so many elements to that year. And then John Candy. John Candy was a massive part of the story. Uh, and, you know, delving into his, him, him that year was so much fun. Uh, so yeah, there's, that's why I think it's, I think it's a great story worth, I felt this was a story that deserved to be preserved for posterity that 50 years from now, people are going to read this book, I hope and go, wow, I can't believe that happened back in, in the early 1990s. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, uh, you and I were talking just before we started here, how my, my history with the CFL myself, you know, I don't know a whole ton admittedly about the CFL history. I was born late 90s and started being a fan. Mid-2000s is when I started following it more closely. So, uh, you know, you hear about all of these players throughout history, but, uh, you know, I, I personally, and I think there's many other CFL fans out there who just don't have this knowledge of the history. So it's great to have it in books like this where, uh, where certainly people can learn more about it. Um, yeah, well, and you know, it's one of the sad things about about the, the way things have gone for the league in the last couple of decades is that we're not seeing a lot of books written about Canadian football. There were a lot sort of in the 70s and 80s, and it's just kind of dwindled since then. Part of that is that, you know, book buying habits have changed. Part of it is that the CFL is not sort of at the same level in the sporting consciousness that it was back then. And it would be a real shame in my mind for stories like this to not get recorded. Uh, and so that's why I did it. I mean, I really literally thought about the idea that I want long after I'm dead, I want, I want to think that people would still read this book and would still think, man, that's amazing to, to find out what happened back in 1991 and 90, 90 and 92 and so on. Now, you mentioned you were, uh, you became an Argo season ticket holder, uh, I believe 1981, you said it was, right? Uh, what, what led to you becoming a fan of the CFL and the Argos? Because I think a lot of people have a very different path when it comes to uh, how they get into this. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I grew up, I, I was born in 57 and I, I grew up obviously in the 60s. Uh, I wasn't a huge sports fan as a, as a young kid. Um, 
I uh, didn't really start following sports until, until I was about 10 years old. Uh, my dad, I grew up in London, Ontario. It was about two hours outside of Toronto. Uh, my dad was an Argo fan and a Leafs fan. And when I started following sports, I became an Argo fan. And, and part of it was because my dad was a fan. But, but a big part of it was the fact that the Argos were the first really cool team. When you're a 10-year-old kid in 1968, you know, that, that was, you know, four years after the Beatles got on Ed Sullivan and everybody, you know, the, the guy, boys and men's hair were start was starting to get along and, and, you know, the whole counterculture thing was starting to happen. And the Argos were like a really cool team. They had guys with long hair. Uh, and so that between that and the fact that I loved their color scheme, the double blue colors. And they had a really, they had a cool team full of renegades, right? I mean, it was Leo Cahill's first, first go round with the Argos as the coach. And he had a bunch of guys that were just not anything like my dad's generation, even though some of them were the same age as my dad or maybe a bit younger, but they, they seemed more like me, you know, guys with, with handlebar mustaches and long hair and, and they wore outlandish clothes and they, they did out crazy things. And so I got really swept up with the Argos and thought, this is the team that I'm going to follow. And, uh, I, I got really serious about following about a decade later in 1977. I just got this, this notion that, you know, if I'm going to be a fan, I'm going to be a serious, dedicated, diehard fan. I'm going to start. I started by doing scrapbooks. Like I would clip stories out of the newspaper and put them in a scrapbook. And pretty soon that got way out of control. I got way too many clippings. And now, but I've been doing it ever since. Like it's, it's this ridiculous obsession that I've bought so many newspapers over the years and saved so many newspapers over the years. It's like it's a fire trap, right? I mean, when I when I moved when I moved from uh, uh, I think it was when I moved from Edmonton back to Toronto in '93. Uh, it was my it was a corporate move. My company was transferring me, and so they they brought in a moving company to sort of plan the move. And they 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 looked at my my storage stuff and said like You've got two tons of paper." And, and so I think I just, I just decided I'm going to document it. I'm going to, I'm going to keep track of everything. And so, I mean, I, again, like I stopped doing scrapbooks about 1978 because I couldn't keep up with the gluing and cutting and pasting, but it didn't stop me from collecting stuff. Right. And so I, and then as soon as I got a VCR in 1983, I started taping every game and, and then later started taping sports casts and stuff like that. So it's been an obsession. I, it's a crazy obsession, no question. And one of the things now that I'm getting older, I, I know I promised my wife, I'm going to find a home for all this stuff. I'm not leaving it to her to figure out after I die. Right? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so it's, uh, I mean, that's how I got into it. And, and I just, I kind of felt like I just had this thought that, you know, if you're going to be a fan of something, you need to be all in, you need to be fully, truly committed. So therefore you need, to see every word that's written about them and everything that's said about them on tv and obviously i can't do all i can't do every single one but i've tried i mean i you know i still subscribe to three daily newspapers and and i still <laughs> i still clip the articles and stick them in boxes oh, wow. i don't know what i'm ever going to do with them i probably <laughs> no one's going to take that stuff but but i do have a lot of cool stuff like media guides and programs that i think i can find a home for in a library or somewhere um but yeah so you know i'm just like why if you're gonna be a fan be a fanatic be a be a diehard be a serious serious fan and what better fan to be a serious fan of than the Argos that with the greatest color scheme going and the coolest uniforms and all that stuff right I know some of your listeners are going to disagree with that but <laughs> I don't care 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, if anybody uh, from, you know, the uh, CFL Hall of Fame or uh, Canadian sports museums uh, ever needs any new exhibits, just call Paul. I think he's got uh, two tons worth of paper that he could probably that's, use. That's right. Well, you know, they, they, it's funny. They, the Argos brought back the 1991 team for a reunion 10 years ago in 2011. And uh, they, they had a game where they, you know, all the, all the old guys came to the game and they had a halftime ceremony and stuff. And my, it was my videotapes up on the Jumbotron, right? Oh, I wow. had all the games from 91. So I, I, I burned a whole bunch of them to disc and gave them to the Argos. And when I'm watching highlights up on the screen, I'm thinking, yep, that's off my, I'm the guy that takes <laughs> that game, right? That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, writing a book is obviously quite the impressive accomplishment. I mean, I, I imagine I won't ever write one in my life and many people that happens for them as well. Uh, never mind one, you wrote two of them as you talked about. Something I'm always curious about when it comes to authors is what was the journey that got you to that point? Was it something you had always envisioned your, yourself doing or was it a spur of the moment thing? What led you to decide, I'm going to write a book and this is the topic I'm going to write about? Well, that's a great question, Ryan. I mean, I, I worked for years in journalism. I work, I've basically spent my the last 40 years of my life, all of my adult life working in journalism in one form or another. But I was mostly not a writer. I was mostly an editor. Uh, later, I became a manager. So I like I ran a newsroom and then I, I moved off. I moved out of the newsroom into the human resources side, but still in the news business. Um, and I never I never thought of myself as a, as a writer, really. I, I mean, I didn't. I just like I said, I, I only actually did reporting for about two of uh, two of those years. Uh, the rest of the time I was I was helping shape other people's stories and assigning stories and things like that. Uh, but in 19, sorry, in 20, 2011, um, I worked for I worked for 31 years for Canadian Press, which is the national news agency. Uh, and in, they had a change of ownership. They it had been a it had been a cooperative owned by all the newspapers of Canada. And then for 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 many reasons, but primarily for financial reasons, uh, it, be, it got taken over and became sort of privatized, owned by three by three companies. Uh, and as part of that endeavor, as you often get in changes of ownership, uh, you know, they looked at, at their, their structure and their staff and they didn't need me to stay on any longer. And so I was given a package to leave. And, and I wasn't, I mean, I was sorry to leave after 31 years, but I was actually ready for some to take on some new things. Uh, and because I'd been there for 31 years and I was in a, it was in an executive role by the time I left, I got a nice package. I was, I was going to get paid for a while. Uh, and so I didn't have to race into anything. And, and I do a lot of my best sort of free form thinking, riding a bike. I, I love to ride. I cycle a lot. And often when I get my legs pumping and I'm just going along, I get brainwaves. And one day I was on the bike and I, and I thought, you know, I've always wanted to read a book about the 1983 Argos. No one's ever going to write it. So what the hell? Why don't I? Um, and I got some time on my hands and I'm, and, and I'm getting paid a salary for a while. So let's do it. And uh, so I, I reached out to, uh, I, you may have heard of Lori Bercy, who is the, the head of the Friends of the Argonaut. She's like the, the Argo super fan. Um, and she, I said, I told her I was thinking of doing this. And she, she said, well, you've got to talk to Jan Carinci. He, he's a player from that 83 team. He knows all the players. He's, he's, he's kind of the connective tissue of the, of the 83 alumni. So I reached out to him and went out to Moncton, New Brunswick and interviewed him uh, for a couple of days. 
And that's how it began. And uh, and I discovered, to my surprise, that uh, long form journalism, and I mean, books are long form, right? I mean, the the both these books have been over 80,000 words. Uh, I was used to writing stories that might be 400 to 600 words, nice. and now I'm writing 80,000. But I discovered I liked it, and I, and I was pretty good at it. I had some help. I had a fantastic editor working with me for both the books. Actually, two editors on this latest book. Um, uh, the one who is a phenomenal writing coach, Don Gibb, a journalism professor and a, and a longtime journalist, really helped me shape the first book and really helped me find my voice. Uh, and so that's how it began. I, uh, I was just sort of that flash of inspiration on a bike. Um, and then being able to do it, be having the luxury of being able to, you know, I, I, I got a little teaching job, uh, teaching journalism part time that, that I socked the money from that into an account to pay for some flights to do interviews in out of, you know, other cities around North America and to pay Don as an editor and to pay a transcriber to transcribe the interviews. Uh, and it just became kind of a little self-contained project. Uh, and I was really happy with it. And, and you know, the players and, and coaches that I wrote about were happy with it. The fans that I spoke to really enjoyed the book. Uh, and I just felt like I really had, I'd, I'd achieved my goal. I'd, I'd accomplished the goal of telling the story and giving, giving that story justice. Uh, and that's how it began. And here I am now, eight years later, with another one. Now, getting into the year of the rocket, one of the main focal points of the book, as you've talked about a little bit, is kind of the big three names who came together to buy the Argos, Wayne Gretzky, John Candy, Bruce McNell. Uh, how does this group of three guys who are uh, arguably all famous and successful for very different reasons, none of them remotely CFL related up till that point, how, how did they come together and decide, let, let's pitch in together and buy a Canadian football team? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, of course, you'll remember, uh, I guess it's a little before your time because you're, you were born in the 90s, but, but you'll know, I'm sure, that um, uh, Bruce McNall, he owned the LA Kings. He bought the Kings, I think. He got control of the Kings in 80. He bought the, he bought in in 86, and I think he got control of the team in early 88. And he had, he had the very smart, almost a genius idea to try to get Wayne Gretzky out of the Edmonton Oilers and into LA. You know, the LA Kings were just not a big deal in the Southern California market. It was, hockey was an afterthought. Uh, they'd been around for 20 years and nobody really paid any attention to them. And, and he, he figured out Gretzky's the greatest superstar in hockey. Uh, I wonder if I can get him. And sure enough, Peter Pocklington, who owned the Edmonton Oilers was, uh, you know, he was running into some financial troubles and he, he thought Gretzky's on a downside side of his career he's a he's a diminishing asset and anyway Bruce talked him into to a trade he had to you know Bruce had to pay like 15 million dollars U.S. plus some pretty good players to get Wayne to Southern California but when Wayne joined the Kings all of a sudden hockey became huge Wayne Wayne Gretzky at that time was you know as big an athlete biggest as big a star as Magic Johnson was for the LA Lakers this was a bit before the, the Michael Jordan era uh, and having Gretzky in, the, in in California was was a huge deal, and the Kings became a big thing. And 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 Gretzky went in as obviously as the star player for the Kings, but he was also he became McNall's business partner. I mean, they they mm. went in together on first of all they they famously bought a baseball card. There was a thing called the Hannes Wagner card, which was a I think it was from 1909 or something, and it was a rare rare baseball card that had been withdrawn because. 
the, the player, Hannes Wagner, objected to the fact that it was issued by a tobacco manufacturer. And so the card got withdrawn and there were only a few of them in existence. And Wayne and Bruce together teamed up and spent $451,000 to buy a mint condition of that card. And then, then they started buying in the racehorses together. And so they were business partners. I mean, obviously, Gretzky was, was Bruce's employee as a, as a hockey player, but he was also his partner. Uh, and meanwhile... John Candy had this huge movie career down in, in the States. He had moved down to California with his family, down to Los Angeles. And, and he was a big star at the time. He'd starred in Uncle Buck. He'd starred in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And he had a very hot career going where he was getting paid more than a million dollars for most of his movies, except for some of the sort of the small parts that he would occasionally take on. And uh, he was a huge he was from Toronto uh, and he was a huge hockey fan. And he, he, he became the honorary captain of the Los Angeles Kings. He had wow. season tickets. He went to every game at the fabulous forum. And, and before every game, he would go and have dinner with Bruce and a whole pile of Hollywood celebrities in the, in the dining room underneath the fabulous forum. Uh, they would sit there together. And I mean, the story of how the sale came about is, is murky. I, I say in the book that there's a number of different versions of it and no way of knowing for sure what is what really happened but i believe what likely is the most is the most likely scenario is that uh i know bruce was a member bruce mcnall was a member of the board of directors at hollywood park racetrack in in los angeles and also on the board of directors at the time was harry ornest who owned the argonauts he bought the argos in late 88 and he'd owned them for the 89 and 90 seasons and one day, I believe, at, at Hollywood Park, Harry and Bruce were chatting. And Harry had owned the St. Louis Blues before, before Bruce got into the NHL. And so they were chatting. They had something in common, owning sports teams. And one day, Harry said to Bruce, I've got you. Hey, you own a sports team. I've got this team called the Argos, and I'm, I'm looking to sell them. Are you interested? Bruce knew nothing about the Argos. He, he told me that quite readily. Uh, but because he knew Wayne was from Bradford, Ontario, which is only a couple of hours outside of Toronto, he called Wayne. And Wayne said, Bruce, there's only one team worth owning in Canada. It's the Argonauts. Mm -hmm. Then he called Candy. And Candy had grown up in Toronto wanting to play for the Argos. He was a huge fan who went to games in the 60s at Exhibition Stadium. And he said, Bruce, like, man, I, are you, this is incredible. You're buying the Argos? And then Bruce got them both to buy in. They each gave a million dollars to the cause. And so the three of them teamed up to buy the Argonauts. Fascinating. I was trying to think, you know, before when I was reading a bit into this, you know, I, I was honored to receive a, a PDF copy of the book ahead of time to, you know, prepare a little bit and start reading into it a, a bit. And I started thinking, what would a 2021 equivalent of this uh, ownership group be? Do we get like wow. Connor McDavid or Alexander Ovechkin and like Dave Chappelle maybe? And I'm not <laughs> yeah. sure who McNall would be, but yeah, uh, uh, yeah, that's coming right. together. Yeah. Who, who would McNall be is a great question. I mean, I guess maybe who's maybe uh, Mark Cuban. Right. Like the, a flamboyant yeah. owner of a, of, a, of a major sports team and, a, and the greatest hockey player and the greatest comedian going. That's you're right. So I think Chappelle and Chappelle and McDavid would for sure work, although McDavid, the only thing that would screw, I guess, would be more Ovechkin because McDavid's in a smaller market. Right. Ovechkin's at least in the big market in the States. Uh, and then Cuban or something like that would be the only thing I can think of. Maybe if, uh, uh, you know, maybe if um, uh, Bob Kraft bought, bought it and, and, and brought Tom Brady along and uh, um, Chappelle or somebody of that ilk. Right. 
Well, I, I know we've already got a potential ownership group for the Atlantic Schooners if they do end up making it into the week. But if we got an 11th team, watch out, these three guys. And I'm uh, looking forward to the book uh, 30 years later. There you go. It'd be great to have the great to have those guys in the CFL, that's for sure. Um, another kind of main focal point of the book, I mean, it's called Year of the Rocket for a reason. One of the big pieces is Rocket Ismael himself uh, and how he was brought to the Argos. And this is just such a fascinating story in its own right to me. Uh, you know, a college star, projected first overall pick in the NFL draft. And then he just suddenly signs with this team in Canada that I'm guessing at that time, a lot of, you know, American football fans had not heard of. And so he signs with the Argos. Like, we know how much first hype first overall picks get. I mean, we start hearing about them ways in advance. You have fan bases of teams lower in the standings, you know, kind of secretly hoping their team tanks a little bit. They're salivating at the potential. Uh, and then this guy just doesn't show up. He goes to the CFL. What was the overall reaction like when this went down? Yeah, it was it was incredible. I mean, it, th- this is one of the things that will never be repeated. I mean, the, you know, it, it's for, for historical context, it's worth it's worth remembering that the CFL did outbid the NFL at times in the 70s and even into the very early 80s for players. Uh, you know, when, in 1971, oddly enough, 20 years before, uh, and oddly enough, from the same school, Notre Dame, the Argonauts brought in Joe Theismann. Uh, they, you know, he had been he had been Notre Dame's quarterback. He had he had been the runner up for the Heisman Trophy, just as Rocket was, uh, and he'd been you know expected to go to the NFL. Although he wasn't going to be a first round pick, he ended up getting drafted, I believe, in the fourth round by the Miami Dolphins. But Theismann spurned the NFL to come to the Argos and became the highest paid player in the CFL. Uh, there were other ones a lot over the years. Um, you know, the, the Montreal Alouettes uh, signed Tom Cousineau, who was a number one pick in the NFL draft in the late 70s. Uh, the Argos got Bruce Clark in 1980. Uh, so there were, it happened a few times back then. But then the, the money differences between the two leagues got really big. Once, once the USFL arrived in 83, the NFL had to start paying a lot more money to players than they did before. And there was no way that the CFL could compete with the salaries. Uh, you know, and so when the Argos were suddenly talking to Rocket Ismail, and it came out, Bruce McNall, you know, Bruce McNall is a guy that just loves to talk. And he went on uh, Los Angeles Kings, Toronto Maple Leafs broadcast at intermission and said, yeah, we're Mike McCarthy, our general manager is going to see if he can sign Rocket Ismail. And everybody just kind of laughed like, yeah, right. I mean, sure, sure. You're going to outbid the NFL for the, because he was expected to be the number one pick. This, this would be the equivalent of if, if suddenly the Argonauts, you know, this year had signed Trevor Lawrence, right? It just, it, everybody was everybody in the NFL was thinking he was going to be the next big star to come into the NFL. And initially people were skeptical and Rocket's own agents were very skeptical. But McNall, you know, had some money and he and he started started to sound it started to sound kind of serious and Rocket had some meetings. He had a meeting with one team in particular, the New England Patriots, who are not like the Patriots we know for the last two decades. They were they were a shit show, basically. And they were they were actually they owned the first pick overall. They were the worst team in the league the year before. Uh, And Rocket went and met with them and he heard a comment from one of their executives that that sounded pretty racist to him. Uh, So he was pretty perturbed about that. And then the McNall thing started to sound more serious and they, they flew Rocket down to Las Vegas and then Los Angeles and up to Toronto and he was squired around town by Matt Dunnigan and and Pinball Clemens and DK Smith. 
and he was taken on a, on a shopping spree on Rodeo Drive in LA by Bruce McNall driving in a Bentley. And all of a sudden it started to sound like it might happen. Uh, and that, but they didn't talk about the brilliant PR strategy. I mean, they, they signed him on a Saturday night, they got a 24 page contract. It took a, you know, and rocket had a team of, of advisors, you know, he had like business people and financial people and marketing people. There was a big team that had to draft this 40, 24 page uh, contract. Uh, and it all started to come together on a Saturday night in April of, of, of 1991. At the time, the LA Kings were playing the Edmonton Oilers in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And the deal was finally signed at intermission, of, I think oh, wow. the second intermission of the game. But here's, the, here's what made it brilliant. The very next morning, the Sunday morning, was when the NFL draft was going to be held. And so ESPN comes on with its coverage of the draft. It's not like nowadays where it's in prime time and it goes on for three days. <laughs> Sunday morning on ESPN and they, and they come on the air with Chris Berman and, and Chris Mortensen, guys that are still, still in the business now. I guess Chris Berman, I think, is retired, but we, everybody knows who Chris Berman is. And he comes on and he has to say, the, the number one pick is off the board. Rocket Ismail is going to Canada. And they had Rocket and Bruce McNall on on the on the the draft. It was it was a brilliant thing, and it was on the front page of the next day's New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today. This thing was the biggest sports story in the world that day, certainly in North America, and I would argue the biggest story in the world because they gave Rocket more money than any player in football history, not CFL. Any player had ever been paid in any any football league. He was going to get between 18 and 26 million dollars over four years. So that's like between four and a half and six and a half million per year. Joe Montana was the biggest NFL star at the time. He was making three and a half. Wayne Gretzky was making three million dollars and his new employee, Rocket Ismail, was going to be making four and a half million. It was a massive story. That's crazy that the contract itself, I, I mean, you, you look at contracts now, the top contract in the CFL, I believe, probably i mean it's hard to tell when the the, the salaries aren't necessarily published but uh, it, it's got to be what a bowie by mitchell and michael riley up yeah there, they're I making around. somewhere in somewhere in the 500 to seven hundred thousand dollar range and and you know it's got it's funny worth also remembering the context they gave rocket four and a half million dollars a year the the, the 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 salary cap in the cfl at the time for teams was three million so the whole Argonaut team was making three million, and he was making four and a half. They got around the cap by paying him a personal services contract. His, his CFL contract paid him one hundred and ten thousand dollars, which was one of the highest paid contracts in the CFL at that time, and would still be one of the highest paid CFL contracts nowadays, other than the quarterbacks. But yeah, it, it's just just insane to imagine that a guy, one guy, could make that much money. Uh, and obviously, that made it a massive story and made the Argos the focal point. I mean, Sports Illustrated. Was, was covering them and, and U.S. networks were coming up here to cover them. They were on the CNN play of the day back when CNN still ran sports casts. Uh, it was, they were just a huge deal. It was, it was, we've never seen anything like it and we never will again, I don't think. When you look at the NFL today, I mean, guys like Patrick Mahomes out in Kansas City making $45 million a year, that's, yeah. that's 10 times as much as yeah. this contract yeah. that the Rocket had, which was the highest at the time. So, I mean, if, yeah. that, if this is what it took to lure the rocket to, to Toronto back then, it's crazy to think what would it take today to lure somebody. I, I, I probably yeah, more than right. probably yeah, more would. than some of these teams make in a year. 
Well, the, you know, the reason the reason that they gave him as much as they did was because of the fact that he was coming to Canada and he was not going to be able to get the sort of marketing and endorsement money that he would have got had he gone and played in the States. You got to remember, Rocket was incredibly well known, right? Notre Dame was the biggest the biggest thing in college football. They probably still are in many ways. I assume you know, they're up there with Alabama, but they've got a gigantic national following. And, and Rocket was the biggest star who always came up biggest in the biggest games. Uh, and he's got an amazing nickname and he's a good looking guy. And he would, had he gone to the NFL as the number one pick, he would have been selling Coca-Cola and Reebok and all kinds of stuff in that giant market that's 10 times bigger than Canada's. So to compensate him for the fact that he wasn't going to be able to do that, the Argos had to basically pay him the marketing money that he would have had otherwise. And you're right, if to try to do the equivalent today, if, if somebody in the CFL said, let's sign Trevor Lawrence, they'd have to pay him 60 million bucks. <laughs> yeah. That's more probably than some of these teams are close to what their profit margin oh, is. Probably oh, way more. It's, oh, it's 60 it's million bucks. It would, you could take almost the entire league's revenue practically <laughs> out of that, right? It's, it's, yeah, it's, not, it's just not possible. Uh, and it was only possible then because McNall had what everybody thought was a huge sports empire. Uh, as it turned out, it was built on on fraud and i get into that in the book as well it was all based on defrauding investors and bankers uh real house of cards mcnall went to went to federal penitentiary for many years uh and quite happy to tell you all about it by the way um but yeah it it's it was just it, it was it was a it was a, an audacious preposterous plan that had it worked, had they been able to sell out Skydome the way that they thought they would, it would have lifted the value of the, the Argos and it would have lifted the value of the entire Canadian Football League. As it turned out, they didn't get the, the bang for the buck. They didn't get from Rocket what they really needed, which was him to be the Wayne Gretzky of Canadian football. And that mean not only on the field, but off the field. He had to be the spokesperson for the brand of the Argos and the brand of Canadian football. And he was a shy kid, a great player, a great teammate, but a guy that did not want to be in the spotlight. They made they they put the bet on the wrong guy. Basically, he was not suited for what they wanted him to do. Unfortunately, and so while they our attendance went up, it didn't go up as much as they needed it to, and it just didn't work financially. And then they had the magical year in '91 where they won the Grey Cup. We haven't talked about that, and maybe we will. But it you know winning the Grey Cup in some ways was was a bad thing because then everybody was able to move on and start looking at other things like the Blue Jays who ended up winning the World Series in '92. And, and so on so yeah brilliant scheme R rocket really not the right guy to to uh achieve the goals off the field uh fantastic on the field for sure um but there was there's a great line in the book where uh, bruce mcnall signs rocket and says to walter gretzky the late walter gretzky wayne's dad yeah, we want Rocket to be the Wayne Gretzky of, of Canadian football. Walter Gretzky looks at them sadly and says, there's only one Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> That's very true. And there always will only be one Wayne Gretzky, That's right, right? That's right. And Wayne, I mean, Wayne, Wayne had been a, he'd been in the spotlight since he was 14 years old. And he'd been, he'd been a pro for a pro hockey player for 14 years. He, he knew how to handle himself. He knew how to sell hockey in Southern California and how to be the spokesperson for the whole game. Rocket was a 21-year-old kid who grew up in a small town and went and was very protected at Notre Dame. He didn't know how to how to have this thrust upon him. And he was suddenly living in his giant city in Toronto all by himself with few friends and afraid to go out in public because he'd get mobbed. 
just you know they, they put him in a really bad situation in many ways now what he, he's this big superstar on the field it's a big name addition to the cfl to have this guy come and play in your league I feel like often in current times, at least the CFL gets the unfortunate perception, you know, it's a lower level league, a league where players that aren't good enough to get a starting job in the NFL go perhaps try to work their way back up to the NFL. Was the perception similar to this at the time? I know you had mentioned a couple of other guys, notable guys who had come to the CFL, but did having big names like Rocket choose to come to the CFL, did that change that perception in any way? Um, I don't know. I don't think it would have changed it in the United States. I mean, you know, the, the, the sad reality was once Rocket came to, to the Argos, he was kind of forgotten in the U.S. by by the by the by the by NFL fans. I mean, he he just sort of disappeared off the face of the earth for two years. I mean, really hardcore fans would know where he was. And some of them might have even, you know, there would have been some highlights on CNN and maybe on ESPN from time to time, particularly from the big games or from his big plays, because he was still well known. But basically, he just kind of was out of sight, out of mind. Uh, you know, Joe Theismann told me that uh, when he went to the Argos in 71, and Joe Theismann was a very well-known player at Notre Dame. Uh, when he came to the Argos in 71, he would go, he would go back home after the season and his friends would say, what have you been doing? Like they didn't know that he was, he was starring for the Toronto Argonauts up in Canada. Uh, I mean, certainly Rocket didn't, didn't own the Canadian football league. He was a very good player by the end of that first season. I would argue he was probably the best receiver in the league. He wasn't at the start of the year. He hadn't really been much of a receiver at college. He'd been a kick returner. So he had to learn how to play the positions. And, and Canadian football is a lot different than the United States brand of football. Uh, you know, you've got the, you've got motion and you've got, you've got the wider field and you've got, you know, three downs and so on. And so he had to learn that stuff. Uh, but he, he did, he got polished. And as the year went on, he made more and more very big plays uh, throughout the season and culminating in the biggest play of all in the Grey Cup. Um, I don't know that it changed the perception a lot. I mean, I think it, a bigger change might have been in 2006 when Ricky Williams came up to the Argos from a, for a year after he was under suspension in the NFL for marijuana. And he'd been, a, he'd been a rushing leader in the NFL and he'd been a Heisman Trophy winner and he was a great player. Uh, and, you know, there were people that some people thought, oh, he's going to come up and he's going to rush for 3,000 yards. Well, he rushed for 600 yards. Oh, he had some injuries. And actually, Ricky, Ricky Williams conducted himself very admirably. I, I liked and admired him as a player. He never talked down about the CFL at all. And most NFL players who come up here don't talk down about the CFL. But fan perception, both in Canada and the U.S., in Canada, among NFL fans in, in particular, is that it's a lesser brand of football. It's a different brand of football. Um, there are guys that star in the NFL that probably wouldn't do as well in the CFL because of the size of the field and the, and the, the way the positions are configured. And there are guys that would do amazingly well if they came up here. Uh, and there are guys that have gone down from that have starred in Canada and gone down and, and struggled. And there are guys that haven't been all that great in Canada and have gone down and started for years in the NFL. It's just different, right? So I don't know that it made a huge difference up, up here. I mean, I think it certainly brought a lot of pizzazz. There were a lot of CFL fans that were really interested in seeing what the Argos would do and what the Rocket would do. Uh, and I mean, anytime, he, if he ever did drop a pass, fans on the other teams were laughing their heads off, but he didn't drop that many passes. Yeah. Um, you, you kind of mentioned how, you know, that all this fanfare off the field, you bring in the big name owners, they have this 
I think in the first or the second chapter of the book, you talk about how the, the first big game, you know, they bring all these celebrities and big red carpet event and performances and everything. Um, but it doesn't really necessarily, I guess, go as they plan. You know, you talked about how, how Ismail, the, was kind of that soft-spoken guy, doesn't bring the publicity to Toronto. So off the field, maybe it doesn't go necessarily as well as they hope, but that season sure went well on the field for them, culminating in the Grey Cup win. Was was the feeling coming into the year that this was a team that could, could you know, challenge for the Grey Cup and go on to win it? Oh, absolutely. Even if they hadn't signed the Rocket. I mean, they they had, it's funny, I, 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 I talk about this in the book a little bit. The 1990 Argonauts, which was the year before Rocket arrived, had the greatest offense the CFL has ever seen, in my opinion. I, they scored 689 points, almost 40 points a game. They, they were doing this with second and third string quarterbacks because Matt Dunnigan kept getting hurt. And then this, and then the second guy would get hurt. They ended up, they, they almost got to the Grey Cup in ni- 1990. They were, they were tied in the last minute of the Eastern final playing their fifth string quarterback, an emergency quarterback that they just brought back because all the other guys were hurt. They, that offense was unbelievable in 1990. It was Adam Rita's offense. Uh, they had pinball Clemens. That was, that was the, the emergence of, of the man we all now know and love as the pinball. He, he'd come to the Argos in 89, but in 1990, he just tore up the league. He, he, he had 3,300 yards, all-purpose yards. He, he won the most outstanding player award. They had Daryl K. Smith as a receiver. Ed, arguably the, the, the greatest or second greatest year any Argonaut receiver ever had in 1990 with 20 touchdowns and 1,800 plus yards. Um, they were, a, they were a force. And then you suddenly add the rocket to it. Yeah. They were perceived as the gray cup favorites, certainly the, the Eastern favorites. Uh, and they, and as you say, they, uh, they pretty much tore through the league. They, they were undefeated at home nine and oh, and then won won the Eastern final as well. So they were 10 and oh at Sky Dome. Um, they had a little bit of trouble on the road. They were four and five on the road that year. Uh, and they were a big draw on the road. Every time they would go just to a building, they, that was the biggest crowd that that team had basically. Um, but yeah, they, uh, they, they cut through the league pretty fast and pretty easily uh, culminating in the Eastern final with a 42 to three demol- demolition of the Winnipeg blue bombers who had been their rivals for five years. Uh, those two teams had met in the playoffs five years in a row and one or team or the other kept knocking knocking the other one out of the playoffs uh and the bombers had won the great cup in both 88 and 90 uh and they'd come into sky dome in 91 for the eastern final and they're a yappy bunch of talkers a very cocky bunch with a very strong defense led by an amazing linebacking core and the Argos blew them apart. It was 22 nothing, 11 minutes into the game on the way to a 42 to three win. Uh, and then the Grey Cup, uh, the most I think one of the one of the most historic, arc, arc, uh, iconic Grey Cups we're ever going to see. Uh, coldest Grey Cup of all time, arguably. I mean, you know, it's hard to know some of the old, old, old ones how cold they were, but. Uh, by all accounts, it was the coldest of the modern era, uh, minus 25 with the wind chill. Uh, first, first great cup ever played in Winnipeg, uh, which was an important thing that led to 
change in how the, how great cups are played in this league and an important and, and favorable change, moving them to the round of the small cities. Uh, you had Matt Dunnigan playing with the, with the broken clavicle, the broken collarbone, basically, uh, and throwing two long touchdown passes. And you had Rockets' unbelievable kickoff return with 10 minutes to go in, in a one-point game that wrapped it up essentially for the Argos and culminated with the last five yards almost getting hit by a, a frozen can of beer coming out of the stands. Uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a magical year. It, it just... It's almost impossible to describe it all. I'm glad we're talking for an hour. I could I could talk for ten hours about this thing, right? It was crazy. And you can go on to talk for it for what two hundred and sixty something pages, or how many? That's right. That's right. Two hundred sixty-five or whatever it is pages. That's right. So, yeah, a spectacular season for them on the field. Um, we kind of talked about how you know they didn't necessarily get the attendance they imagined out of that. That, that seems to be a common topic these days around the Argos as well as just the fanfare out there in Toronto. What, what is it that's the big issue? Like, yeah, I know you've got the Blue Jays, the Leafs, the Raptors there. Why, why can't a team like the Argos, uh, especially when you have this big ownership group, you, you have these fantastic star players there as good as they were back then. Why, why didn't it take off? Well, I, I get into this a little bit in the book. There's a lot of reasons for the decline of football interest in Toronto. Um, you can you can arguably take it back to about 1977. Uh, you know, you, keeping in mind, like in the 60s and 70s, the Argos were as big as the Leafs. They were, you know, they uh, the Argos were on the front page of the sports section as much as the Leafs were. And there was no baseball. There was no basketball. There was no soccer. Um and the NFL wasn't the, wasn't the force that it is now in the, in the Toronto market. Uh, the Blue Jays came in 77 and they were very smart in how they marketed themselves. They attracted young kids, young families, uh, low price tickets, uh, OK Blue Jays, BJ Birdie. They just did a lot of things right and they gradually built themselves a contender. Uh, and unfortunately, the Argos were owned by they were owned by Carling O'Keefe, which was a, which was the third biggest brewery in Canada at the time. Uh, and, and, you know, didn't really need the Argos to be a big success, but they didn't really put anything into them. And they, they, they it's funny, you know, I wrote the book about the 83 Argos winning the Grey Cup after 31 years. And the architect of that in, in many ways was a general manager named Ralph Sazio, who who brought in a lot of the key players, not all of them, some of them pre preceded him, but he brought in a lot of the key players that, that helped them win in that great cup in 83. Uh, but Ralph says you also believe that the best way to market your team is to have a winning team. Uh, and unfortunately, in Toronto at that time, that was not the best way to market the team. They needed to put money into the team. You can't just put an ad in the paper that says tickets on sale now. You had to, you had to contend with competing with the Blue Jays. And the NFL was getting you know, increasing TV penetration and so on. Uh, so you had that, you had, uh, you had a weird phenomenon. And it's funny, you know, that, that 31 year drought that, that ended in 1983, it had this weird thing, I, I believe, where it built it like, it was like a pressure valve. The pressure just kept building and building and building for three decades. When are we finally going to win the great cup? And you've got to remember Ryan, that they, they, it wasn't just that they wouldn't win the great cup. They were, they were losing they were, they were losing in really bad and embarrassing and terrible ways for many of those years. You know, they would go into the last game of the season. They're going to make the playoffs as long as they only lose the game by 15 points and they would lose by 16 points, that kind of stuff. Right. And it was just always, oh, they were, they were, my book says from national joke to great cup champs, they were a national joke through much of those 31 years. 
So the pressure kept building and building and building. And then finally in 83, we won. We actually won the Great Cup. I, I remember being at the game in Vancouver in, in BC Place, the first Great Cup played in Vancouver in BC Place. And, and uh, I was sitting with some in a, in, a, in a section that had other Argo fans. And there was an older guy sitting a couple of rows in front of me. And he was like, he was just kind of softly crying and going, we won. I can't believe we won. Like he just couldn't believe it. Couldn't register the idea that the Argos had won the Grey Cup. And it was funny. I think that between that, that pressure valve kind of got released. And at the same time, the Blue Jays got competitive in 1983. And by 85, they were in the playoffs. And so the Argos win the Grey Cup and it's suddenly like, okay, we've now got permission to move on and, and start thinking about other pursuits. Let's, let's follow the Blue Jays now. And so some Argo fans fell away, you know, and, and then they moved into Sky Dome in 89, which was thought it was, it was built because of a gigantic rainstorm during a Grey Cup in Toronto in 82 that soaked the hell out of everybody. But it was a terrible facility to play football in. It was the worst place the Argos could have played in. Uh, and so that didn't help. And then they had a succession of bad owners over the years. They've had a few good ones, but they've had mostly bad owners since since McNall, even the McNall group. I mean, in the, in the end, it was all built on fraud. Uh, and subsequent to that, they've had a bunch of bad ones who don't know how to market or didn't have the money. Um, and, and meanwhile, the NFL has become this massive global phenomenon. And then the Raptors came in 95, uh, and then MLSE, uh, which owns the Argos now brought TFC in, in, uh, in the early two thousands, the soccer team, and they smartly built it up by attracting a young audience and making it a fun place to be at games. Uh, so you add all those factors and we could probably come up with, with other ones, you know, the people talk about the blackout of games that sent fans off to the NFL and, and there's a whole pile of things. I, I get into this for a couple of pages in the book and you could actually write an entire book about it. Uh, but it's, it's, they're dealing now that the MLSE is dealing now with the, with the, having to contend with essentially four decades of neglectful and sometimes terrible ownership uh, and, a, and a market that has basically kind of outgrown Canadian football, I believe there's still a possibility of getting it back to being a successful niche product, but it would take a number of years and a lot of investment. I hope MLSE is willing to do that. I'm not so sure they are. Now, one of the guys that's obviously featured in the story of the season and in the story of the book is Michael Pinball Clemens, who is probably, I would say, one of the top icons in Toronto Argonauts history, who... Uh, just recently, you know, this past year, the year before, is named the general manager of the current iteration of the Argos. To me, that just seems like a home run right there for, for this franchise to have a, a storied piece of the history like this running the team. How much of an impact, I mean, we're only now starting to really see his impact on the team, but just on the culture of the team and everything involved does that have? Well, he has a huge impact on the culture of, of the team, both both the you know the players and coaches, but I think even within the organization, because Michael is a Michael is a force of nature. I mean, he is he is the definitive Argonaut. He is the greatest Argonaut of all time. I don't think there's any any disputing that. I mean, you know, there was a fantastic player in the '60s and '50s named Dick Shadow, uh, and there have been great Argonauts. Doug Flutie was here for a couple of years, and Conrad Holloway was here for a number of years. 
Ricky Ray. There's lots of great Argos over the years, but nobody has the resume Michael Clemens does. He played for the team for 12 years. He won the most outstanding player. He was an all-star multiple times. He's three times he set the record in the league for most yards in a season. Uh, he's got the most most yardage ever recorded by any Canadian football player ever. And then he became the coach and he won the Grey Cup. Uh, then he became an executive and now he's back in the general manager role. And 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 what where he's making a huge impact at least right now is. Uh, is in attracting players to come and play for the Argos. It's very hard to meet Michael Clemens and not absolutely want to follow that guy to the end of the earth. So, you know, they're, they're, they're wooing, say, a Charleston Hughes, and then Michael Clemens comes in to kind of, like, close the deal. It's pretty hard to say no to Michael Clemens. Um, so I think he's going to have a huge impact in terms of their success on the field. Um I'd like to think they can also leverage that into bringing in people in the stands. And, you know, I mean, he, they, they, they kind of misused Michael for a while after he, after he left the head coaching job, he was an executive, but they really, they really didn't make much use of him. He wasn't, he was kind of, he had a title, but he didn't really have a role. And that was stupid. I mean, he, how could you ever put to waste a guy like the, like Mr. Argonaut, he's the greatest Argonaut ever. How was he not the face of the franchise ever since 1990? He, he should be, he is going to be again. I think he arguably is now uh, and he should have been for the, you know, the last decade. Um, so I think he will help, um, but they've, but they've still got to get bodies in the seats and, and they've, they've got to contend with, you know, the, all those things I talked about, plus the changing demographics of Toronto and how difficult Toronto is to navigate around it. I mean, some people don't go to games because they can't stand the traffic. Uh, and I know, you know, people go to Blue Jays games, so it's, you can't use it as a complete excuse but there are some people that's that will just will not fight traffic. Uh, and, you know, it's just or, or, or they spend their money on going to see musical theater or whatever. There's so many things to do in this market. Um, it's really a tough challenge for them. I, I obviously, as a, as a lifelong Argo fan, I really want it to succeed. I want there to be a team playing football where named Argos in the double blue for as long as I'm alive and, and well beyond me. Um, you know, I can't wait to take, I've got two grandsons now and they're kind of young, but I can't wait to take them to games in a few years. Uh, I go with my, my daughter who's become as diehard a fan as I am. Um, we love going to BMO. It's a fantastic facility. Uh, it's a, it's a great sport. It's a great, it's a great entertainment fun and it's fun. Even when there's only 12,000 people in the building, it's, it's rocking. Uh, it's a beautiful place to watch a game. Um, so yeah, let's hope it succeeds. Uh, I'm glad Mike's part of it again, We're making him a general manager. I sent a, I sent an email to Bill Manning, the president said, man, brilliant move. You're just, like just you're yes. Thank you. Right. That's the right thing to do. Now we're getting close to the end of our time here. So one question before we start to wrap things up, you've written about these two great stories. Are there plans for more on the way and whether or not you actually put, plan to put pen to paper on them? Uh, are there any, do any other stories come to mind uh, through the Argos or the CFL's history as stories you'd love to write about? Uh, well, yeah, you know, I, I probably, I don't see myself writing any more books about, about the Argos uh, so like, you know, at one point I thought, well, I might as well write a book about every Grey Cup championship that I've ever been alive for. So 83, 91, then there's the Flutie years in 96 and 97. 
you know, and then 04 and, and 12 and 17. But I don't know that those other ones have the same amount of a story to them as the 83 did and the 91 did. Uh, in fact, I'm sure none of them will have as much of a story as the 91 uh, story does. Uh, I do have some other stories that intrigue me. And actually, there's one that I've been I've been kicking around as, as, a, as, a, as a thing that I think would make a fascinating book, but a real difficult research project. And that is the games that were played over the years, and this goes back into the 50s and 60s, between CFL teams and NFL or AFL teams. Exhibition games were played, like the Argonauts played the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Hamilton Tiger Cats played the Philadelphia Eagles in exhibition games. I think that'd be a fascinating story to read about uh, how that worked and, you know, what were the rules and how, how you know, I mean, I, th I think in every case it happened, the, the American team ended up winning, but I'm sure there's really fascinating tales there. The trouble is they were so long ago that most of the players and principals are probably dead. Uh, so you'd be looking at sort of, you know, archival research, reading old newspaper clippings and things like that. There's probably very little film footage of it. If, there, if you could find some, it would be amazing. Actually, it was interesting. I, for this book, one of the guys I interviewed was a guy named Lonnie, Lonnie Gleiberman, who was the owner of the Ottawa Rough Riders back in, he, came, he and his dad bought the team in 91 because they were basically recruited into the league by John Candy. Uh, when the Rough Riders needed an owner, they were bankrupt. Uh, and Lonnie was a kid who grew up in Detroit as a CFL fan watching CFL games uh, across uh, on Windsor TV across, that came across the Detroit River. Um, Lonnie told me that when he got into the Ottawa Rough Riders, there were there was a drawer in one of the offices that a whole pile of films of games between Canadian and American teams. And I said, man, if we could ever find those, like what a, what a story you could possibly spin out of that. Uh, I don't know that I'll ever do it. I think it's a really interesting project, but it probably involves more, you know, sitting, sitting in libraries, reading uh, microfiche or something. Um, I have another one that I have in mind that I'm, I'm not really wanting to talk about yet because I, I don't want I don't want to give it away and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do it. But I, there is one topic about Canadian football that I think is very interesting and sellable and would be a very a very worthwhile historically uh, historically worthwhile project to write about. Uh, so I may take that on. We'll see. I mean, this took four and a half years and I don't know that I could do it again. Right. Um, I'm glad I did it. I'm proud of it. I think I, I think I've done justice to the story. The readers will determine that. Uh, but I uh, I don't know that I want to take on something that big again. But I have I have to admit, I've been thinking about this one project a little bit lately and starting to sort of jot a few notes down that if I were to do it, who would I need to talk to? And maybe I, well, I have thought about the idea of maybe trying to find a collaborator, get some other reporter to work with me so that I'm, I'm sharing the workload a bit, uh, because I think it would be a big research project as well. Uh, and again, as I said, I think it'd be one that Canadian football fans would find fascinating and, and worth reading, and it would be worth having it preserved for the future. But we'll see about that. Thanks for asking. Well, I can't wait till it eventually comes out. It, you know, if that does happen, we'll have you back here on the podcast to promote that one when it does, uh, or really, well, you're welcome back anytime you want. Uh, Paul, it's been such a pleasure having you here on the first edition of the Canadian Football Countdown Book Club tonight. Um, where can people buy the book? Because I'm sure the second they're done listening to this, everybody wants to know where they can go to pre-order it. And uh, also, where can they find everything else we've got going on these days and any future endeavors? 
Well, thanks very much, Ryan. I, I, I have to say, I've really enjoyed this talk so much. You, you've done a great job. And I, as I said to you before we went on air, I thank you for doing the, the, the podcast. I think it's it's really important that, that the stories of Canadian football get told on a lot of platforms by a lot of different voices. Uh, and I love to see some young voices that are part of that. So thank you. And you've done a great job with the interview, by the way. Um, I... The, the book, uh, Year of the Rocket, uh, John Candy, Wayne Gretzky, A Crooked Tycoon, and the Craziest Season in Football History uh, is officially released on September the 1st. It'll be, you'll be able to find it in stores like Chapters Indigo in Canada and, and hopefully it's small independent bookstores as of September the 1st. Anybody that wants to pre-order it can do so now. Uh, go to the Sutherland House website or go to, actually the better way to do it, it would be go to my, my, my Twitter account. I, my Twitter handle is uh, at P xw13 and in my bio on the twitter uh, handle uh, there's a link to uh, to a, a link tree thing that shows four or five different ways you can order the book from amazon you can, if you order now through sutherland house which is the publisher you can get a discount a 20 percent discount which is a really good deal um, so you can do that and, and they'll ship that out I'm, I'm assuming within the next week or two i mean the the book's still at the printers i haven't even got a copy in my hands yet but the, i'm told that it's supposed to be arriving in their warehouse this week uh, and I can't wait to get my own hands on one for that matter. But uh, if anybody goes to my, my, my Twitter account at PXW13, you'll be able to find the link to the, to the purchase options. Um, Bouncing Back uh, from National Joke to Grey Cup Champs it was a self-published book. Uh, it's still available through Amazon. Uh, anybody that wants to reach out directly to me, I've got copies here and I'm happy to, to ship them off to people for a reasonable price uh, uh, or even, you know, hand, hand them over if there's anybody living in the sort of the southern you know the gta or whatever um it's also available through amazon it's available through lulu.com which is who i had to do the printing and the, and they do the they do the print on demand for that one uh so if you're going to order it online i prefer you to buy it off lulu dot com rather than Amazon because Amazon takes a big cut and I, I didn't make my money back on the book and I didn't do it planning to make my money back but I'd rather get 11 bucks per book than than three that Amazon pays right so well said well said uh well everybody make sure you check out Paul's books shout out once again to Sutherland House Books for setting this interview up thanks to Paul again for joining me here for the past hour to chat about it uh, check out all the other shows from around the Canadian Football Podcast Network. I know a couple other ones uh, have had Paul on this week as well, I believe. So if you uh, if you didn't get enough content out of him here and you don't get enough out of the books, go check those out as well. Uh, CF Pod Network on Twitter. Paul, do you have something you want to say? Yeah, I, I just, yeah, if you wouldn't mind, I, I just, I just realized I mentioned, I mentioned earlier that I'd been, I'd done all that videotaping over the years, right? And so I will tell people that you know, in addition to the book coming out, I'm, I'm gonna have a ton of our, a ton of video on a YouTube uh, channel that I've set up to, for, to, for the book. I've just been putting clips together, and I've got hundreds and hundreds of really fascinating news clips from back then uh, that I think people will just en really enjoy. I mean, you know, the news clip, the day that Rocket was signed and the news clip, uh, the the day that the McNall, Candy, Gretzky, not only the news clip, there's bunches of them. I got like, I got TSNs, I got Globals, I got CBCs. Uh, so you get to see what was it like when John Candy was, you know, introducing himself as an Argo uh, owner and stuff like that. So if you go to the, to the, the, the Twitter page at PXW13, there's a link on there to my YouTube channel, right? 
right now there's not a lot of stuff populating on it because I've been leaving it in private mode until I've got all the metadata put together, but there's gonna be a ton of that coming in the next few weeks. For people that love looking at old footage, you're gonna love this. Thanks for asking, Ryan. I appreciate you letting me throw that in. Yeah, no problem. Awesome, awesome. I look forward to checking it out myself and everybody listening to this should as well. Uh, that does it for this bonus episode of the podcast. Uh, Michael Garrell will be back with myself next week to recap week number three in the CFL. Uh, but in the meantime, on behalf of myself and Paul Woods, our special guest here tonight, thank you for listening. Go check out Year of the Rocket when it comes into stores and have a wonderful day. Bye.